Well, good evening. Welcome back to our study of the book of Acts. This is a fun study because you get to see the development of the early church, but it's also just like a little travel trip as well as the gospel moves around the Mediterranean. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for this day. We're grateful that we come together in this place, grateful for everyone who is here, and we lift up our concerns to you, our praises and our cares, and we thank you for caring for us. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to soak up the lessons from the early believers and that we might take your message into our world more effectively, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the 17th chapter of Acts, of the book of Acts. We are, there is your question line, just texting your questions during class. We are in the middle of what's called the second missionary journey. Paul takes off, he didn't think they were missionary journeys, he just thought he was out spreading the gospel and starting churches. But this journey is a second organized one, and it's around 49 to 51 AD. If you remember from last time, we, he went to Lystra, and picked up Timothy, a young apprentice, a young preacher. He moved on without doing a lot of preaching and ended up in Troas, a port, where he picked up Luke, who's writing this account. Remember, Luke's changed into first person at Troas, and so he joined them there. They sail across to Macedonia to Philippi, and that's what we talked about last time, where Paul's adventures on the Greek mainland in what was now, it's now Greece, but it was Macedonia at that time, and Philippi, we talked about that city. Remember, he met Lydia, who was a woman, a businesswoman who was a dealer in purple cloth and uh, textiles, basically. She was a textile representative for uh, the factories, and uh, she came to Christ and hosted a church in her house and hosted them. They were put in jail because they were upsetting uh, the order of things, and then the earthquake, and the Philippian jailer, and he too is converted. And uh, Paul and Silas get out, and the magistrates say, you can go, and they say, hey, we're Roman citizens. And so we kind of got a glimpse of Paul using his civic rights to further the gospel. So as we move on uh, now, he's going to move on from there. He's basically following this Roman road that goes all the way east to west. It turns out in this era, the Roman roads turned into kingdom roads for Paul. He would basically, as best he could, follow those great Roman roads and Roman pathways uh, and commerce, like the interstate system today. If you stay on the interstate, you know you're going to be able to get gas at certain points. You know that because of the traffic, there are going to be places to eat or, or places to stop. It was kind of like that with these Roman roads as well. Not exactly, but similar. You're on a better traveled area, so it's a little safer from thieves or robbers. It's also typically going to have places where you can stop. Not always, but places where you can stop. So it was a great idea to use those Roman roads, and that's what Paul did. Well, as we open chapter 17, he moves on from Philippi, and he says, when they had passed through, he stays on the road, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, you've seen this formula before, he goes into the Jews in the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so three different Saturdays, so three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Christ is a Greek word. Messiah is a Hebrew word, and they mean the same thing. So that this Jesus is the Messiah. He said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few of the prominent women. We talked about the God-fearing Greeks where they were not Jews, but they believed in God, and so they were able to come to the synagogue and worship without being circumcised and taking on the full weight of the law. And this was kind of a technical term for people who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but were not Jewish, but wanted to worship. Cornelius. Remember Cornelius and Peter? He was the centurion. Peter came to him and said, hey, you're a Gentile, and then realized, but now you're a Christian because you believe. That's kind of what's happening here. You see Greeks and these God-fearing, uh, and the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. Well, let's look at where we are just a little bit here. I want to show you this passage. It is kind of interesting. So he leaves Philippi, and he's going to go by Amphipolis and Apollonia. From Philippi to Amphipolis is about 30 miles. That's more than you can walk in a day, typically. If you had a horse, which he didn't, that's about a day's journey. From Amphipolis on to Apollonia, about another 30 miles, and then on to Thessalonica is about 40 miles. So think about this as walking from here to Tulsa and uh, living outside if you don't make it to the towns in time. If you don't get to Stroud, you're sleeping out in the, out in the open. That's kind of what Paul was doing here. Then he comes to Thessalonica, which is a large city. Thessalonica, let's see, let me give you a little of the history of that. Go back in time to Alexander the Great. He has just died, and his generals have taken over his empire. The general who took over this part of the empire is named Cassander. Cassander, in 315 BC, renamed this city in honor of his wife, who also happened to be Alexander's half-sister, which might explain why he got to be a general. But anyway, he renames it after her. And her name, pretty little name, by the way, Salonika was her name. And in Greek, Thessala means sea. So Thessalonica means Salonika on the sea. And it's a beautiful city on the sea. And that's what he named it after his wife. Fast forward a little when the Romans were in this area. You remember I told you in one of our stories that the Romans end up fighting in this area for supremacy. Julius Caesar's killed. Brutus and Cassius, who were part of the ringleaders in his murder, flee with some legions. Antony and Octavian. Octavian will become Augustus Caesar. Go fight them to, re- to avenge Caesar's death. And on and 42 BC, they met in a big battle right in this area. Thessalonica and the cities around there had to decide who are we going to support. Thessalonica guessed right, and they supported Antony and Octavian, who won that battle and killed Brutus and Cassius. And as a reward for supporting them, they made Thessalonica a free city, meaning Thessalonica could be kind of autonomous. And so it kept its Greek form of government and did not have a Roman form of government like Philippi did because of this favor that they did and they were granted to be a free city. And you're going to see that the book of Acts understands that. There's been some criticism, because there's always criticism of the Bible, that the book of Acts is not entirely historically accurate. 
But it's really interesting how often that turns out to be no. In fact, it is quite accurate. This is one of the cases. You're going to see that it describes the government of Thessalonica in a Greek style, and history demonstrates that's exactly what was happening here. This Thessalonica is where the two letters in your New Testament, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, those are letters that Paul wrote to the church in this place. In fact, 1 Thessalonians is probably written just maybe weeks after his visit here because his visit gets cut short. Thessalonica is a, a, not a very good place to see ruins because as happens sometimes in that part of the world, the new city is on top of the ancient city. Sometimes it's relocated throughout history. Sometimes it's on top of it. And so, for example, Thessalonica is the only ruins you can see are downtown. I mean, it's in the city, and so you can't really excavate. These are not from the first century, but these are two massive pillars. And then here's a picture uh, when we were there, standing by a sarcophagus, by the way. These are interesting. You find these all over that part of the world. Now, Jews didn't bury their dead in sarcophagi. They would put them, remember Jesus in the first century, they'd put them in a tomb, in a uh, cave, basically, a garden tomb, leave people about a year, come back and collect their bones, and they'd put them in a bone box called an ossuary. So it's about this big. And they'd put the bones in there. But non-Jews buried their dead, particularly well-to-do. They would put them in these sarcophagi, and these are massively decorated and hugely heavy. Nobody carried this casket in and out of the church. You know, this, these things are heavy. So there's some great ruins there, but not so much in Thessalonica because the new city is literally on top of the ancient city. So as Paul came in, you know what this place is. There was a Jewish synagogue, and he went into reason. And I want to point out a couple of things that he does. Notice when he goes to the Jews what he's teaching them. He opens up the scriptures, and he begins to reason with them. When they say the scriptures, what's he opening up? The Old Testament because the New Testament isn't here yet. They're just now starting to write these letters and encourage the early church. They open up the Old Testament, and he begins to reason from the Scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, why do you suppose that would be important to him to do? Because the Jews thought of the Messiah as a conquering king. They thought any Messiah that comes is going to come, build an army, and kick these Romans out. Well, he goes through and demonstrates to them from the scripture. He's telling them what happened. This Jesus was crucified on a cross and literally raised from the dead. And there are all these witnesses of this event. And he goes to the scriptures and say, the scriptures foretold this. And he begins to help them understand that the conquering king would not be in an army. He would be the Messiah. And so he says, this Jesus... This man whom we have seen is this Messiah and fulfills this. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and some of them did not. It's interesting to see the message, because you're going to see a really different message when he's talking to the Gentiles. I don't mean different in that it's not true or it's not about Jesus, but the Jews understand the Old Testament, and so he starts there. They accept that that's the inspired word of God, and so he says, then let's go see what God says and he begins to demonstrate to them how these things point to Christ. So that's what Paul was preaching in that time frame. Unfortunately, some of the Jews were jealous, and they rounded up some of the characters from the marketplace. That word marketplace is agora. In Philippi, I showed you the agora. That was that huge open place in the center of town 
where you would have a market, but it was also a place to gather and you would have different people teaching and uh, you would have news coming in, you'd have merchants there. And so there would be day laborers hanging around in the agora or the marketplace and they'd be hired out for the day. And if they didn't get hired out for the day, they'd pretty much do anything for money. And so these are some kind of unsavory characters. And so some of the Jews who resented this rounded up some characters, they formed a mob, and they started a riot. A riot is a scary thing. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a riot. don't know if any of you, some of you may have caused one. I don't know. But you basically, that's a scary event. And so literally they form a riot, and they rush to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas. Now this is someone who's become a Christian, like Lydia, and said, why don't you come stay at my house? Bad move, Jason. So they come to Jason's house in order to find Paul, but they don't find him. So they drag Jason and some of the other Christians, brothers, before the city officials, and they're yelling, these are the men who have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here, and Jason is letting them stay in his house. Jason's like, how did I get in this? They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Well, several interesting things in this passage. Let me point out a couple things for you. There is a word in here that you cannot tell uh, very much, but this word for city officials, the Greek word is politarch, politarch, which literally means ruler of the city. It is not a term that was typically used in the Greek world for the rulers of a city. There were other words that were used for magistrates or city council or that kind of thing. And so for a long time, people thought, well, the book of Acts isn't very uh, accurate. But it's funny how, as it typically turns out, and I tell you this simply to say, you need to be really cautious when you hear things about the Bible not being accurate. Because sometimes it's just a matter of digging things up. A hundred years ago, people thought this was inaccurate. Now there are over 32 inscriptions that have been found in Macedonia from uh, the time before Paul and a little bit time after Paul, and now it's just commonly accepted, obviously, Politarchs, and they say the Politarchs. That was the name for the city councilman in Macedonia. Like I say, 32 inscriptions. So I mention that to you just to encourage you that the book of Acts has unbelievable, historically accurate information. There's not much question that these are eyewitness accounts. So anyway, the Politarchs were the rulers of the city, and they drag them before it, the rulers of the city. And I want you to see this face here. Uh, people who are causing trouble all over the world have now come here. That is literally, I mean, NIV kind of cleans this up a little bit, but literally what it says, these men who are turning the world upside down. I think the ESV translates it more accurately, I mean, more specifically that way. These men who are turning the world upside down, have now come here. That is an interesting thing to say. I just want to camp out on that for a second. So he is relatively new into Macedonia, but word has followed from Turkey, where he came from before, Asia Minor, but it's modern-day Turkey, comes over to Philippi, goes through preaching, I mean, it's just Paul preaching this good news about the Christ must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And it's already turning the world upside down. These people are saying these guys are unsettling the order, the settled order of things. 
I find that very interesting. First of all, that that's a charge that's made against them. And secondly, that they, people feel like they are literally turning our society upside down. What are they doing to turn the society upside down? <clears throat> well, they don't have any wealth or power. They're not blowing anything up. They're not, they don't have any weapons. They're not assassinating anyone. It's nothing that you would think. It's not an ISIS kind of situation, turn the world upside down. It's a just go tell people the good news about Jesus. And somehow, it's so many people believe this good news, it begins to change the way those people behave. And, he, and this, the impact on the culture is they're turning the whole world upside down. They're totally upsetting the order of things. I find that really interesting and very challenging on two levels. One, would people say that about us today, Christians in the world today? These Christians, these people at Crossings Church, are turning the world upside down. They are totally upsetting the cultural order of things. And if not, the interesting question for us is, why not? In other words, why are we not turning the world upside down with this? And I think we're going to see a hint of this in a little bit uh, when we look at the second accusation. But the other question is more personal, and that is an encounter with Jesus Christ in that culture literally turned the culture upside down, or at least that's the way they experienced it, and an encounter in our lives literally turns our world upside down. And every now and then when I realize, I kind of get to this little complacent spot and I realize, you know what, I'm not sure Jesus is turning my world upside down. That's usually a sign to me that I need to reconnect because an encounter with Jesus always turns our world upside down. It always unsettles us. It always takes us out of our comfort zone. Well, one of the things that they were arguing about was, listen to this, he said, they are defying Caesar's decrees. Well, what were they actually doing? Saying there is another king. Now, that is punishable by death. You didn't even, that didn't even have to be on the books as a law for you to get into trouble for saying there's another king besides Caesar. The emperors not only insisted on being the kings, they insisted on being worshipped. I mean, it's not long after this that the emperor cult, the cult of worshiping the emperors becomes a big deal and becomes a big problem for the Christians because they won't worship the emperor. At this time, they're just subject to a charge that, hey, they're telling everybody that some guy named Jesus who was raised from the dead is king, not Caesar. And it's interesting that, that the world, they reacted so strongly to that message that Jesus was Lord. And I'm going to suggest to you that that message is always going to bring us into conflict with whatever government authority. It's just a matter of time as to the Lord, you know, the lordship or the kingship of Jesus Christ is going to bring us into conflict. One of the reasons it doesn't is in our culture, we have this kind of a postmodern thinking of what's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is true for you. And Stanley Hauerwas, who's a really prominent theologian, says this. He says, in our culture, it's as though sometimes we're saying, I believe that Jesus is Lord, but that's just my opinion. And he goes on to talk about how really absurd that message is and how inconsistent it is. If Jesus is Lord... He's not just Lord over my life. 
if he really is the creator of the universe, raised from the dead, he's actually Lord over everything here. And you're going to see Paul actually teach that to the Greeks in just a little bit. But that is a culturally upsetting message. That's basically saying to a nation that I want to be a good citizen because I'm taught as a Christian to be a good citizen, but when push comes to shove, Jesus is my Lord. That is an inherently upsetting statement. And I'm going to suggest that when we preach that to the world, that Jesus is our Lord, he deserves our obedience, it's going to start turning lives upside down, and in time, that's going to turn the whole world order upside down. That's all that was happening here. Paul doesn't have any magic or special elixir. He's just teaching that message. And they accuse him of being subversive by teaching that message. So what they did, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. What they basically said was, look, you guys aren't guilty of anything, but you're going to post bond, and if there's any more trouble, it's forfeit. So basically what they were doing is saying, look, you let these guys stay in your house, so you're responsible for keeping the peace. So you need to shut these guys up. Well, needless to say, Paul and they weren't going to shut up, but as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So Paul and Silas are the, kind of the focal point of this, so they move on. But the church behind them continues to quietly grow. As you're going to see when he writes the letters back, that church continues to grow but since Paul was sort of the lightning rod, he moves on. And so Paul and Silas move on to Berea. Berea is a city uh, about 50 miles away. And on arriving there, they went to the synagogue again. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness. And look what they did. They examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed because they looked at the scriptures to see if what he said really is in the scriptures and really true, and so did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. You notice, by the way, you're seeing a lot, I mentioned this to you in our last lesson, you're seeing a lot of mention of prominent women, women coming to Christ. There was more, relatively speaking, freedom for women in the Greco-Roman world than there was in the Jewish world, and you're going to begin to see women uh, take leadership roles, be, uh, having Lydia having a church meeting in her house. You're going to see women become more prominent in this, and you didn't see that so much in Judea. That's a great example of using the culture. In other words, Paul preached to Jews, didn't try to upset their world. He just said everybody can hear the gospel. And then where women had more freedom, they were able to express that more in the Greco-Roman culture. So they, many of the Jews believed, but when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Now think about that for a minute. They traveled 50 miles to follow him, to go stir those people up, to try to get rid of him. You are going to see unbelievable zeal on the part of the Jews to shut Paul up. And that's how threatening this message is. Now, I know you're probably thinking, if you're like me, wow, that's motivation. Who can take off work for three days to walk the 50 miles, then go stir up the trouble, and then walk back? I mean, you're taking your whole two-week vacation for this, right? So who's going to do that? But I want you to notice in our culture the lengths that some people go to to try to shut Christians up. 
because the message of the cross is so offensive to the culture. Well, it was very offensive to the Jews. You can tell it's kind of offensive to the Gentiles too. So they went there, they agitated the crowd, stirred them up, and so the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. And the men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy after they got the church established to come join him as soon as they could. So Paul basically goes on from, he, he leaves a, a group there and he goes on to Athens. So he gets on a boat, sails down into the southern part. Now he's left Macedonia. He's in another country called Achaia. Think of it as Greece in those days. So he sails there, and so now he has inadvertently, he's left the road, and he's escaped south, and he's found himself in a really interesting place. Let me show you a little close-up map. This is southern part of that. This is Greece, so here's Athens. That Athens at this time is the intellectual and cultural center of the Roman world. Back in the 5th century B.C., in the 400s, it had really been the economic and the political and the cultural powerhouse of the world. But now it's fallen on a little harder times, but it still is the cultural and uh, intellectual center of the world. Corinth, where we're going to visit soon, because that's where he's going to go next, is the political and economic center of this area. And Corinth is like, think of Corinth as the New York City you know, it's got the Wall Street. And Athens, we don't really have, a, have an equivalent for that. Athens exhibited so much cultural influence and power over the whole Roman Empire. Athens was named after uh, the goddess Athena. Athena is the patron goddess of Athens, as you can kind of tell by the name. And I want to show you uh, a little bit there. When he gets there, he's waiting. So Paul isn't necessarily trying to do ministry in Athens. He's escaping from the Jews. Not a lot of Jews in Athens. I mean, it really is a pagan center from them. I mean, they're gods and all the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses are there. Not a big Jewish group, so they figure he'll be safe there. But while he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. The, the language really, I mean, it technically says he became very angry to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. There were, was a small Jewish population there. And the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, the Agora, by day, with whoever happened to be there. In Athens, the Agora, huge. The Agora was really a place for exchange of ideas. There were more philosophers in Athens per square foot than anywhere else in the world. So he, he argued by day. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating some foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Again, you notice, what is the preaching in the early church? Heavily about the resurrection of Christ. As Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ is not raised from the dead then our faith is in vain. The center of the Christian faith, I know that we sometimes think the cross is the center. It is hugely important. Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross. But has he not been raised from the dead to defeat death? Our faith is in vain, Paul says. And so the preaching in the early church focused a little more on the resurrection, on this idea of hope and overcoming. 
And so he's preaching this good news. So they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, we want to know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And then he mentions all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Well, let's take a little bit of a look at Athens. Athens today is also a city that is built on the ancient city. And so throughout the city of Athens, you'll see some temples and some ruins uh, of the ancient temples, but the most magnificent place is the Acropolis. So you'll see things like this. This is right below the Acropolis. This is restored. You can see the seats are restored, but the facade is not. You see this gorgeous theater overlooking the modern area. And like I told you last time, everywhere you have a public facility like this, you now know what these are, right? You need restrooms. This is public restrooms. You're like, where are the stalls? There are no stalls. Where's the privacy? There is no privacy. Now, last year, or last time you caught me a little bit off guard with an engineering question, and so my picture didn't adequately show you how these work. So, there's water running under here. That was a question last time. Underneath these seats, they've engineered it so there's water running. Okay, here's a twist, though. You see this little trough? There's also water running there. And if you know why, just go ahead and text Laura with the answer to that. Okay? But these are the public toilets. And you see really what with those times was a very modern cosmopolitan place. The uh, apex of it was called the Acropolis. Acropolis in Greek, Akron means the high point and polis means city, the highest point of the city. And most of these towns had an Acropolis, had a, had a high place. And the reason is they usually were founded in a place that you could defend. And so they would build a fortress, typically, up on that little high, highest part of the city, up you know, a mountaintop, and they would defend it. And so people would live all around, but if you got invaded, you could run into the, to the fortified area. Jerusalem is built that All the ancient cities are built that way. Well, this Acropolis, Greece, uh, Athens became strong enough they didn't need to be fortified, so they repurposed in the 5th century B.C. The Acropolis became just a huge place with temples. It's not the only temples in Athens, but it's some of the most magnificent. So up on the Acropolis, the Acropolis is that hill, that top part. Up on there are these magnificent temples, and it's amazing that uh, 2,500 years later, some of these things are still in as good a shape as they are between conquest and earthquakes, etc. The Acropolis is particularly beautiful. This is unbelievable shot. At night, they don't just light up the temples, they light the whole mountain up, the whole Acropolis. And it is just gorgeous view uh, of the Acropolis. On top of the Acropolis, you have a lot of temples. There are temples to all kinds of gods up there, temples to Artemis and temples to... Uh, you know, Poseidon and their temples to everybody, there are all kinds of temples to Athena. Athena was the goddess of wisdom, mathematics, strategy and war, and a variety of other things. She was the patron goddess of a lot of things. That's just the way the Greeks thought about their gods. And so if you wanted wisdom, Athena was it. And they would build temples to various gods, this isn't true just for Athena, in their various forms. So, for example, this is looking up at the Acropolis. This is the temple of Athena Nike. So it's the goddess Athena, and the word Nike in Greek means victory. And so this is Athena 
victorious. This is Athena in her guise as victorious in war. And so the Athenians built a temple to Athena in her guise as the one who's victorious in war as a, a prayer or a hope that the Athenians would be victorious in war. And they would do sacrifices here. They had priests there. So it's one of the really well-preserved, very pretty little temple of Athena Nike. The big temple, there are many temples on top of it, is the Parthenon. This is a temple to Athena Parthenos. The word Parthenos, uh, kind of a long story because there's a, really a bit of an argument about this in the Bible. The word Parthenos means virgin. It technically means young woman, but it, it means virgin. And so when it talks about in the New Testament about Mary was a virgin, it uses this word. And so some skeptics look at that and they say, look, Mary wasn't necessarily a virgin. It just means she was a young woman. Well, this temple is dedicated to Athena in her pure form, Athena the virgin. And so my argument is, well, the Greeks didn't have any issue with that word meaning virgin, and I don't think we do either. But that's what it is. This was a magnificent temple, a huge temple to Athena. You see some of the shots from the side of just, this is what's standing. Just absolutely amazing. And then I think I put in a yeah, big shot from the side so you could see uh, what this looks like. But this is just a massive temple to Athena, their patron goddess. So as Paul is there, he's walking around and he sees nothing but temple after temple. And again, there are many temples up here on the Acropolis, many in the city. Just temple after temple with idol after idol after idol. And it really disturbed his spirit. It says it literally made him angry to see all of these idols. So that's what's happening in Athens. So while he was waiting, he was distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he began to speak out. This doesn't look like Paul really planned a missionary trip. He's there and he goes, this is crazy. These people are so lost. It isn't funny. None of these idols are real. And so he begins to speak out about Jesus. And he arouses the interest of some of the smartest people in the world. Athens had the most, think of it as the MIT and the Harvard and the Oxford, all combined of that world. These are the smartest people in the world. And two of the big philosophies were called the Epicureans and the Stoics. There were several others, but they are very uh, foundational, particularly in the Roman world, the Stoics. Stoic philosophy, which I'll tell you a little bit about in just a second, really resonated with the Romans. Epicurean, maybe a little more with the Greeks. But let's talk about that a little bit. Epicurean philosophy is founded by a guy named Epicurus. Epicurus, he lived in, the, you can see, the 4th and 3rd century BC. So he's been around, this philosophy's been around for a while. What the Epicureans believed, they were very materialistic. They followed the teaching of a guy named Democritus, who taught that all matter was made of atoms, small particles. And so pretty progressive for before the time of Christ, isn't it? They believed that all things that you could observe were made of these small particles, and everything was essentially material. They thought that there were gods, but they weren't supernatural. They also were made of material, and they thought that the gods were pretty indifferent to human life. The Epicureans believed that life ended at death. There's nothing going on after death. And they believed that the most important thing in life was pleasure. And so it comes down to us today to say that someone is an Epicurean means that they're a pleasure seeker. But they weren't exactly a pleasure seeker in, in terms of excess because they thought the most pleasurable life 
was a tranquil life. In other words, a life of, of a little bit of moderation, living peaceably and quietly, free from pain, uh, no disturbing passions. They didn't want to get too revved up. They didn't want to get too sad. In other words, they thought the most pleasurable life was kind of even keeled. And so they tried to enjoy things. They, would, they wouldn't just eat and eat and eat and eat. They wouldn't drink and just get ridiculously drunk every night. They wanted to measure it. A little moderation, they thought they could increase their pleasure and maximize uh, their life. They didn't like any kind of superstitious fears. In other words, they really didn't think if the gods existed, they didn't owe the gods anything. And so you can see, and by the way, there are a lot of Epicureans today. They just don't call themselves that. A lot of people you know, secular people, think like this. The purpose of life is to maximize pleasure, be as happy as you can, minimize pain, get as much stuff to enjoy your life as much as you can. Most of the people you work with probably think like that. They just don't call themselves followers of Epicurus. But there are a lot of people that that's what they want out of life today. That's how they thought. So needless to say, the idea of resurrection is absurd to them. You know, the idea of a God whom, to whom we owe allegiance is really crazy to them. So they're hearing things from Paul that don't make a lot of sense to them, and they want to know, what is this guy teaching? Now, the Stoics were founded by a guy named Zeno, about the same time as Epicurus. And Zeno taught a little bit different. The Stoics believed a little bit differently. They believed that there was such a thing as a divine spirit, and they were pantheists in that the divine spirit was in everything, certainly in human beings, but in other things as well. And they called this divine spirit the Logos, L-O-G-O-S. Uh, logos means word. It can mean reason. Uh, but they understood the Logos as a technical term to be the name for this divine spirit. And they thought this divine spirit was, think of it kind of like a soul, but not exactly. It's just that little spark of divinity. They thought it lived on after your death. You didn't, your body didn't, but this divine spirit lived on. They also thought this divine spirit, this logos, was what ordered the universe. In other words, without this divine spirit, you wouldn't see the design and the planets and the stars. It was the organizing force of the universe. You understand now what, why, what John is saying in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the logos, the word, the logos, and the logos is God. He's saying, you don't actually know what the logos is. I'm going to put a name on the logos. You see what he's doing? He's taking the idea in that culture, and he's saying, I'm going to explain to you what this really is. So you see Christianity interacting with the culture more than you think, and you'll see that in a minute from Paul. But as long as we're talking about the Logos, I wanted you to understand, when they said the Word of God, the Logos of God, they knew that they were tapping into something that these Greeks thought. They're just going to redefine it to be what is true, not what is untrue. But that's what the Stoics thought. The Stoics thought that they were highly ethical and they lived by reason. They thought that emotions were not trustworthy and that one needed, one's reason needed to guide one's life. So they tended to be pretty even keeled. They tended not to be very emotional, very ethical in their own way. And they also um, believed in self-sufficiency. And what they believed in as self-sufficiency is the same word that Paul is going to use in Philippians 4.11 when he said, I have learned to be content. 
uh, self-sufficient, if you will, in any and every circumstance. Again, but he says, because I can do all things through Christ, they thought you can somehow attain to this on your own. So you see how the New Testament's really interacting with the world. And Paul's getting ready to interact with these guys in a very specific way. Let me pause there for a second and see if we have any questions. I hope they're not about plumbing, but if they are, we'll deal with it. <laughs> um, okay, well, going back to the beginning of the lesson a little bit, why were the Jews in Thessalonica jealous of Paul? The Jews in Thessalonica had two issues with Paul. Number one, if they didn't believe this good news, they thought that, hey, that's heresy. You're talking about a guy being the Messiah, and we don't think he's the Messiah. The jealousy comes in that here they are in the synagogue, and these Jews believe, hey, he's the Messiah. We're going to go follow him. We're going to worship on Sunday morning, and we're going to be Christians. You know, we're going to follow this Jesus Christ. They're not coming to the synagogue anymore. And so all these people become Christians, and it's upsetting them. It's sort of like, okay, this is a bad example, but maybe it's not so bad, is if a new church pops up in town and 90% of the people that go to this church start going to that one, well, the normal human emotion would be, hey, wait a minute, you know, what happened? Kind of like that. You see from the Greeks, they're upset too, not because they're taking worshipers away so much as they're just changing people's lives. So the Greeks were saying, they're turning the world upside down. And the Jews are saying, they're taking all the people in our synagogue and they're becoming Christians. So that's essentially why they were jealous. They had really two issues with him. Can you tell us um, about the providence of the letters of Paul? How were they discovered and translated? Yeah, the various letters of Paul, that's a good question there. I mean, it, it's a big subject to kind of trace them in, in, in particular, but basically... When Paul would write a letter, he would send it, uh, in this case, likely when he got to, I think when he got to Corinth, he probably wrote this letter, gave it to Timothy and said, go back and check on the church and take this letter to him. You know, and he did this a lot with these young uh, men who were his young preachers and apprentices. They would deliver things. And so he would send the letter to them. They would read this letter and they would copy this letter because they thought this is important to us and they began to copy it. They would share this letter with the other churches. In their times, at least once in his letters, Paul says, when you've read this, read it over in this city, and you read the one I sent to them. So they started making copies. These letters, these scriptures, the early Christians realized this is God's instruction to us. You know, these are words of Jesus. These are testimony from the apostles who have seen Jesus. This is precious. This is God telling us how to live out the Christian life. They understood them as not just writings. It's not just an email that you got, you know, from Terry. You know, nobody's keeping that, right? The delete key. Well, they didn't hit the delete key. They started copying it, and they shared it around. And, oh, this instruction is very useful for us. This is God speaking to us. And so down through decade after decade, century after century, Christians so valued it that they began to copy them. Then they began to collect them and say, oh, here are letters of Paul and Peter and James. Here are all these eyewitnesses to Christ. Let's gather up the teaching of the apostles. And so that became basically your New Testament. On any given letter and the various 
strands, textual strands and so forth gets more complicated, but that's basically what happened. They treasured these words of the eyewitnesses to what happened and they copied them and protected them with their lives, literally, throughout the centuries. It's a powerful story. The fact, the New Testament that you and I have, it's almost a shame. If we understood how much blood was shed, how much effort, how, how much they revered these words of God, not the book, but the living words of the testimony, we'd read our Bibles more. It's amazing. That's a great question. Do you think the influence that Hollywood and celebrities in general have over our culture today is similar to the philosophical influence in Athens at this time? Yeah, that's a great question. What, who are the philosophers of our age? Who are the wise men of our age? Who are the people that are influencing our culture? And they are people with an agenda. The Stoics thought this is the way you need to live, and they were actively supporting it. And if you watch TV shows that the Stoics produced, it would show you happy little Stoics, you know? In other words, they're trying to get their message out to people. In our culture, there are people who have agendas. Every law that is passed, every television show that's done, everything that tries to, uh, to influence you is coming with some kind of an agenda, some kind of philosophy or a way of life behind it. That in and of itself isn't bad. That's been going on for 2,000 years plus but we just need to recognize it for what it is, is everything has a vision of what life is supposed to be like and some kind of value system. We're gonna talk about politics a lot in the fall series, but let me just give you a glimpse, because sometimes I think Christians say, you know what, we don't wanna impose our values on the culture. Somebody is imposing their values on the culture. Every law that gets passed is a reflection of somebody's value system. So in our age, the various competing ideologies, whether it's secularism or humanism or American materialism, those are all ways to live your life. Like the Stoics, they said, here's the way to have the good life. You need to get in touch with the divine spark that's in all of us and off they go. And the Epicureans say, no, the way you live life should be maximize your pleasure, minimize your pain, and it's pretty much about me and my pleasure and pain. You see how these different ideas come together? Same thing in our culture. So we just tend to not identify those people as much, but we have Epicureans and Stoics in our culture as well. well I just wanna say I've had a couple of entrants um, about the plumbing, so far no correct answers. Any correct answers? Not yet. Okay, keep working on it. It's, it's very clever. Well, this is who he's tangling with, and they take him to a place called the Areopagus. The Areopagus um, is just two Greek words. Ares, Ares is the Greek god of war, and Pagas means uh, hill. So this is the hill of Ares. It's a hill that's now, I'll give you a little closer view, a hill uh, this is looking from the Acropolis right down. It's just, you know, where the Parthenon and all that is, you just look right down and there's this hill. It's just a stone, kind of an empty stone hill. And it's uh, basically named the Hill of Ares, the god of war. The Roman god of war is called Mars. So Ares, Greek, Mars, Roman. Mars Hill, Areopagus, same place. So you'll see a lot of Christian churches called Mars Hill or uh, ministries. It's named after this place, and it's named after this place because this is where Paul 
confronted the, the secular culture. He's not going to talk to Jews now. He's going to talk to the smartest secular people around. And so he does it here. The Areopagus was a place, literally that hill right there, but it was also a council that met in that place. Think like Wall Street. Wall Street is a place, a location, but it's also an exchange. It's something that happens in that location. Same here. The Areopagus was a council of people who had, over time, had different kinds of authority, but at this time, they likely had authority over teachers like Paul. In other words, like, hey, what is this guy teaching, and is it subversive or is it heretical? They were pretty liberal, but, uh, you know, is this okay? So they bring him up for an examination. They're like, hey, tell the smartest people here what it is you're teaching, and we'll just tear you to shreds. And so that's what they were doing, is they brought him up there to do that. And so Paul, this is brilliant. I mean, this is one of the most brilliant speeches. And I don't know that Paul had a lot of time to prepare it. This is just Paul preaching. Notice how different in some respects it is than the Jews. He's not going to talk about the Bible at all. These people don't think the Bible, the Old Testament's inspired. They don't even believe in that God. So he's like, fine. If you don't believe in it, let's talk about something else. And look what he says. So he stood up in the meeting of the council, the Areopagus, and he said, men of Athens, which is how they addressed each other, I see that in every way you are very religious. This is a snarky little comment, by the way, because that word religious can mean two things. It can mean you're really religious or it can mean you're superstitious. And so they're probably like, hey, did he just insult us? Wait a minute. He's like, me? No, I see that you are very religious. You know why? I walk around, I look at all your objects of worship. You know what I found? An altar with this inscription, to an unknown God, which, by the way, archaeological evidence, they did have temples to unknown gods. Like, okay, if we missed anybody, this is you, right? So it is very clever. He says, you must be really religious because you've got all these temples and you even have one to the unknown God. He said, I tell you what, what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to tell you what it is. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord. Notice this lordship idea again. He's the Lord. He's in charge of heaven and earth, but he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not that petty. He's actually made all of this. He doesn't need you to make him a temple. So he kind of comes out boldly. He connects with what they know. He says, you got all these temples. You even got one of the unknown God. Let me tell you who that is. What you don't know, I do. He said, this is the Lord of heaven and earth. From one man, he made every nation of men. They should inhabit the whole earth. And he set their times and their places. What he's really doing is he's describing kind of the logos the Stoics are hearing like, okay, this is, you're telling me that this particular personal God is the one who ordered everything? It sounds kind of like this Logos we think of, except the Logos is not personal. And Paul says, yeah, you're kind of right. Mostly not, but you're kind of right, you know? He says, let me tell you who that really is. And so he begins to describe this personal God. God did this so that men would seek him. In other words, there's motive. There's a very personal God. Perhaps men would reach out and find him, although he's not far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Fascinating. He quotes two poets here. Uh, he didn't quote in scripture. He's quoting their poets. Paul's a very educated guy, not just in Jewish things, but apparently also in Greek things. The first one people think comes from a guy named Epimenides, about 600 BC. So he's a Greek poet from 600 years before. The second one is interesting. It comes from about 300 BC, so 300 years before, but it's a Stoic poet. 
I mean, he knows what he's doing, and he's also obviously pretty well read. But he said, hey, even your own poets have said, in him we move and have our being and we're his offspring. I'm just here to tell you what your poets didn't understand. I'm going to tell you who this is. And so it's very interesting uh, what Paul is, is uh, doing here. He's basically, this speech sounds very Greek, but the ideas are very biblical. In other words, this, the rhetoric here is very Greek in the way he's doing it, the way he's kind of weaving in their poets, but the idea is solidly biblical. And a lot of people see this as a model for how we should take the gospel to the secular world, is we might need to adapt the words we use and the techniques. Maybe we're going to use Twitter, maybe we're going to use television, maybe we're going to use radio, but the message is always going to be that solidly biblical message. The other thing he does really well is he connects with what they believe. This is something that I think makes Tim Keller such a good preacher and something he's written a lot about is he says that all truth, and he's right, and Paul understood this long before anybody in this century did. He said, even you pagan Greeks have a little glimpse of the truth. You've got a little glimpse. You know there's a divine spark. You just don't know what it is. You know, you know that in some sense there's something greater than us. You just don't know who he is. And so he connects with them by what little bit of truth they know and then expands on it. And I think that's really effective for us is to talk to the culture and say, you know what, just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean you don't understand anything. You get a little glimpse of truth. Now let us flesh that out. And that's what Paul's doing. He's kind of filling it out for them. But he's pretty bold Look what he says at the end. He said, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design. In the past, God overlooked that kind of ignorance. He's getting kind of in their face a little bit because they think they're really smart. He said, you're pretty ignorant. And God's been pretty patient with you guys. But you know, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this by raising this man from the dead. You notice he comes all the way back to Jesus. He said, yeah, you've got your poets, you understand this, but there's really this God, and let me tell you who he is, and let me tell you what, he's going to hold everybody accountable, and he proved it by raising this man from the dead, and that's what I'm here to tell you. This Jesus is resurrected. Notice how he ends up at the resurrection with both groups of people. He just gets there differently. But notice what he says to them. This is interesting. He starts out by saying that God is Lord. Now he says, we need to repent because there's going to be judgment and there is a resurrection from the dead. That's the gospel message. That's what you see all the preaching is, is about. It says, the God who made this world is Lord and he deserves to be worshipped. He needs to be obeyed. He has given us an opportunity to turn around, to repent because he is going to hold us accountable. There will be a judgment. And thank the Lord, Jesus is raised from the dead to give us hope of new life. That's the gospel. And it's interesting how he manages to tell that to the Jews, and in a different way he tells it to the, to the secular people. Does that make sense? I think that's a great template for preaching in a post-Christian world. I think we probably need to preach this way even more than we need to preach the other way because I think many people who even say they're Christians think in a post-Christian way. They think more like the Greeks on Mars Hill than they do 
like Christians. I just think we have been really influenced by that. And I think this simple message of Paul's is really powerful. The idea that there's a God who is Lord, he cannot be ignored, and he must be obeyed. And he gives you the opportunity to acknowledge that because there will come a time when this Jesus is appointed to judge the world. But God loves you so much that Jesus bore your sins, God raised him from the dead, you have the hope of eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. Our current condition is not good and God has made a way for us. That's a simple message of the gospel and it's really instructive to see how Paul uh, does that, how he passes that, that on. He connects with what they know and then he corrects it by simply telling them the truth. And that doesn't sound very impressive. You go, yeah, I read that and I listened to Billy, Billy Graham and Billy's better. Fine with that. The point is, think about what makes this powerful. Do you think it's because Paul was a wonderful speaker? In Corinth, he's going to write him a letter and says, hey, I didn't come to you with any eloquence. I'm not a great preacher. I just came to tell you the truth about Jesus Christ, the cross and the resurrection. One of the things that made Billy Graham powerful, for example, was it was just a plain old gospel message. You know? And that's what's powerful for you and me. We don't have to be eloquent speakers. We don't have to be the smartest people in the world. We just need to go tell this simple message. Hey, let me tell you what my life was like and here's what it looks like after Jesus Christ. I have the hope of eternal life. That is a powerful message. That simple message was turning the world upside down. And I'm going to argue that that message will continue to turn the world upside down. Well, I know that you're saying to yourself, okay, that might work at Harvard, but that will not work on Wall Street. Okay, next week, Wall Street of the ancient world. We're going to Corinth. We're going to confront the money brokers of the world, and we'll see how the message goes over there, okay? All right, now, go tell the simple message of the gospel today. We'll get to the bankers next week. Thanks. <laughs>